Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Um, Some of you may have noticed that last week I wasn't here, and that's because Shelly and I um, were were gone. Um, Kind of a new tradition that we've started last couple years is that try to get away one weekend a year, um, just the two of us, but we go down to Holmes County, get a cabin down in Amish country, and just a chance for us to kind of escape from our daily stresses <laughs> um, and kind of recharge our batteries. And so um, that's where we were. And we both really felt the need for that, even though it was just, you know, three days, two nights away, we really felt the need for it because this year seemed like it was particularly bad in that every time we tried to make plans for anything, and it could be, you know, just a weekend to get away somewhere with the girls, whether it be, you know, just a day of fun or relaxation, um, family outings, even, you know, I just think making a two-hour drive out to Fostoria, Ohio to visit my parents. It seemed like something always came up this year and interrupted our plans. Could be a sickness in the family. Could be the dog getting sick. It could be the weather not cooperating. Other responsibilities just interfering. Just, just It's been a really frustrating year. It seems like nothing we planned worked out. And even going into last weekend, we were kind of nervously looking like, okay, what, what, what's going to fall? What shoe's going to drop that's going to upset these plans? And thankfully, nothing did. Now, these disruptions to our plans, mainly minor inconveniences and disappointments compared to the disruption of bigger plans that people have in their lives. But even so, even though they were more small, and like I said, just inconvenient, disappointing, This year's really reinforced in my mind that old Yiddish proverb that says, man plans and God laughs. And when the plans that we make, when they don't come to fruition, especially they they don't come to what we thought because of circumstances beyond our control. Like I said, it could be much, that could be much greater than simply having a weekend vacation for the family um, canceled or having a backyard party um, rained out. It can be bigger plans in our lives as well. It could be things like career projections, spousal and family arrangements, lifestyle aspirations, you know, much grander, much long-term, long-range plans. We often find that what we kind of set up in our mind and like Okay, maybe this is where we want to be in two years, this is where we want to be in five years, this is where we want to be in ten years. They get delayed. They get detoured. Sometimes we just have to outright abandon what those plans were because of misfortunes, unforeseen problems that we could have never anticipated. And occasionally, we have to admit, you know, sometimes it's our own poor decisions or our own poor actions that lead to plans not working out as we had hoped. My work as an assistant dean up at Case, I see this all the time. I see where undergraduate students, they have a plan. Usually it's a four-year plan. I'm going to graduate, go on to graduate school, or go on to a profession that, I've been, that I'm here at college to train for, and something disrupts that. 
Career ambitions are disrupted because of a poor test score. Maybe the, the onset of a long-term illness or a loss of a family member distracts them from their studies. Ill-advised choices in majors, in classes, how they manage the, their time, all these things can disrupt what their plan was for college and beyond. And sometimes, again, these, these disruptions, these delay to their plans, maybe it is just a delay for one to two years. Sometimes, though, it causes these students to have to redirect their lives altogether in ways they never would have imagined. And I'm not here to say that these detours are always negative, because sometimes one's career aspirations are, dis are disrupted because you find your basherta, you find the love of your life, the one God wanted you to be with, and that takes you down a different path than what you were anticipating before you met that individual. Perhaps one's plans to move to a different city, a different state, they get derailed because all of a sudden at home they get this amazing job offer they never envisioned them having. And it's actually a great blessing that they get to stay where they're at and that plan that they originally had gets disrupted. So sometimes good things come from these disruptions too. But when we're faced with this reality that no matter how much planning we do, how much control we try to exercise over our lives, because ultimately that's what our plans are. It's our, us making an effort to try to control our own lives. There's simply too many variables in life to account for. that We just can't anticipate everything that's going to happen in our lives. There's too many forces beyond our means to bend them to our will, to bend them to our plans, to make them fall in line. So faced with this reality, we're left with the question, why, where do we actually stand? And is it worth even making any plans? You know, you may begin to say, well, you know, if plans are always going to be disrupted, if we can't anticipate everything, should we really even aspire to any type of goal or plan? You know, do we aspire to a particular career? Do we pursue certain dreams? Or perhaps maybe we should just live reactive lives in which we wait for our fate to occur and we'll just respond when the time comes. After all, if we take that Yiddish proverb seriously that God laughs at our plans, does that suggest there's no reason to make plans at all? Well, in the parasha this week, we see a man confronted with the task of carrying out a plan. It's not his own plan, but it's the plan of Avraham, the plan of his master. Now, Avraham wants his servant to go find a bride for Isaac among the people, his own people, among Abraham's own people, rather than having Isaac choose a bride from the people of the land of Canaan. Now, the servant's not named in these verses, but it's assumed by many that this is probably Avraham's servant, Eliezer of Damascus, who was named back in chapter 15 as being the steward of his household. Again, I, I, Avraham not wanting Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman, a woman, and thus be influenced by those, the nations around them. Or also not wanting Isaac himself to leave the land in Canaan and go back to, where, to Haran, to where Avraham came from, to find that wife. Avraham instead tells his servant to go to the land of his family and find a wife for his son. Now as an aside, especially as my daughters grow older, I really like this idea. I like the idea that whether I do it or I could send someone out, go find a worthy man for my daughter and then I'll judge if that's the right way or not. 
Now, at first, we may not think much of this story, since it's Avraham, after all. Avraham, who Scripture tells us, walked with God and was even considered by God as a friend, a friend to the point that God would not hide his will from, from Avraham. Thus, what Avraham commands his servant can easily be seen as simply carrying out the will of God. Yet if we make this assumption, we miss an important lesson from the servant who carries out Avraham's plans. For in his actions, we see how each of us should approach planning and aspiring towards future goals. We see that it's, good, it's okay to make plans, but how we approach those plans are extremely important. For the servant reacts to Avraham's plan, not just by saying, it's a waste of time or it's foolishness to pursue because God laughs when man makes plans, but rather in recognizing that God may laugh at our plans, the servant seeks God's guidance and his blessing upon his endeavors in every action that he takes. In other words, he seeks to affirm that Avraham's plan is actually God's plan. Thus, after receiving instructions from Avraham, the servant go, asks for God to give him success. He doesn't automatically assume it's going to be given to him because I'm just doing what Avraham, the friend of God, tells me. But he still turns to God and asks for a blessing and for success. Genesis 24:12 says, And he said, O Lord God of my master Avraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Avraham. Furthermore, the servant seeks out God's will in regards to Avraham's desires. Rather than relying on his own knowledge or his own judgment, he asks God to intercede by showing him a sign as to who should be chosen among the women of Avraham's extended family as the wife for Isaac. The servant continued in his prayer to God as follows in Genesis 24, 13 through 14. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed to your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now when I read the servant here making this prayer to God, asking for a sign to point out who is the woman that you want for Isaac, in my opinion, this actually is the servant, by asking for a sign in the way he asked for it, he's actually demonstrating remarkable faith in God. For he could have easily simply prayed for wisdom in making the decision himself, or for favor among Abraham's family to select the right woman. But instead, he prays for God to actually intervene directly and to make that selection. Acknowledging God's sovereignty over every individual, he prays for a specific sign that only God could orchestrate. And then when that sign occurs, he trusts that that is God answering it. As we relate the lessons of these events to our own lives, we have to ask ourselves, how often do we ask for God to actually provide us a direct answer to our prayers? We may ask God to lead us in the right direction, but do we actually trust him to make that decision for us? Are we willing to ask for a specific sign like Avraham's servant? Or do we leave our prayers vague in order to retain the final decision over our options? Say, for example, you have a job offer for a position that you are not entirely certain is the best move for your family. Do you merely ask for God to help you make the decision? 
Which don't get me wrong, that's the right thing to be praying. But do you, again, do you leave it open? Do you leave it vague? Like, Lord, just give me that wisdom, and then you just go out and make the decision on your own? Or are you ready to get specific and to ask for a sign, and when that sign comes, whether you like it or not, will you be obedient to it? And again, it's not necessarily that you have to ask for something miraculous, but ask for something specific and clear. Now, at times, now, at times when one raises the issue of asking for a sign, I know for myself, and I'm assuming it probably happens for some other people, there's a, there's, there's a question that comes up in the back of your mind. Is it really at right to ask God for a sign? And you may think, well, you know, I remember Yeshua saying something about it's wrong to demand or to ask for a sign. Matthew, 20, or Matthew 12, 39a states, But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, when we read Yeshua's chastisement here of the scribes and the Pharisees about saying, you know, an evil or an adulterous generation is the type that asks for a sign, we have to recognize that the sign that they were asking for is something very different than like what Avraham's servant was asking for. Or you think of someone like Gideon and putting out the fleece. This is a very different, what Yeshua is chastising here is something very different than what these people were doing. For the sign that was asked for by the Pharisees was a challenge to Yeshua's authority. They saw him performing miracles. He saw, they saw the healings, but yet they still asked for another sign to, for challenging his authority. To, it was the authority that was behind the teachings that he was bringing forth. They were specifically testing him to see if he possessed the authority of the Mashiach. And in testing him, they were violating the commandment given in Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massah. Now, in contrast to them asking for a sign from Yeshua in order to prove himself, in order to prove his authority, the servant of Avraham was actually doing the opposite in asking for a sign. He was acknowledging the authority of God by asking for a sign to show him who Isaac's wife should be. He knew that God's sovereignty over his creation made it possible for God to orchestrate all the events of that day, which led Rebekah to the well at the perfect moment, and to move Rebekah's heart and mind so as to act in the manner that would reveal herself to be God's intended bride for Isaac. Thus, Avraham's servant was not testing God when he asked for a sign, but rather he was seeking God's direction and approval. So you should, when you are asking God to give you a sign, again, asking God to make a choice, asking God to show his approval or his direction, that is perfectly okay to do so. Don't let that other verse maybe question whether you should ask for a sign or not. Gideon provides another example of someone asking God for a sign in order to discern his divine will. Judges 6, 36 through 40 tells us. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. 
Let me test, I pray, just one more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Now, when we look at Gideon here, and if you're trying to weigh, well, was it right for him to ask for this sign or not? So first again, look at the intent behind the sign. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that nowhere is there an intent to test God's authority or his sovereignty over a situation. He's not behaving like the Pharisees were towards Yeshua. And putting out a fleece and asking that the dew be on it while not on the ground, and then the, the following night for the exact opposite to occur, Gideon really wasn't questioning whether God had the ability to provide victory for Israel. Instead, what Gideon is see, was seeking is he was looking to know the will of God and determine if victory over these nations in the east that are attacking Israel, would that victory be given at this time through him, through Gideon? In the story of Gideon, if you want to say, well, maybe there is a fault, well, maybe it's in asking for the second sign that he didn't trust the first sign enough. And even Gideon himself seems to acknowledge that in asking this, well, maybe, I am start, maybe now I am starting to push the bounds because God had performed the sign, the first one he asked for, and that's why Gideon, even in his prayer, he says, you know, don't be angry with me for asking for this. But even there, in asking for this, the, the second sign with the fleece, he, again, he's not questioning God's sovereignty or his ability to grant Israel victory. Again, he's looking for confirmation of God's will that, God, I really, I, I'm lacking some confidence, and I really need to be, be shown by you that you are choosing me in this moment. That truly is your will that I be the one who leads the army of Israel against its enemies. Therefore, asking for a sign, putting out a fleece, it's justifiable for us when, again, we're seeking God's will in our lives. Or when we're asking him to decide questions that are confronting us. However, if you intend to ask for such a sign, like I said earlier, you should only do so if you generally want the answer and you're going to plan and act accordingly when, once you get it. Now going back to the example from Torah this week with Avraham's servant, we can see that once he asked for God to show him who, the woman, who is the right woman for Isaac, through the sign, he asked for a sign. A he asked for a sign that is a particular set of actions, and once he prays it, God brings it forth immediately. Genesis twenty four fifteen through nineteen shows us. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Avram's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Now, if you stop and think about it, the fact that Rebecca appears immediately after the servant's prayer ends. If you, if you think about it, it really does demonstrate God's sovereignty over this entire situation. Because for Rebecca 
to appear right at the moment that the, that the servant stopped, prayer was over. That means God knew the prayer before it was even spoken. And that he had orchestrated Rebecca's entire day so that at that moment she would appear at the well. He would have had to guide her. What time did she wake up that morning? What time did she eat her meals? What time did she leave the home to journey to the well? What things did he prevent occurring that day would have been a distraction from her to show up right at that time? Or what things did he make occur that day that sped her up or sped up the events around her so that she arrives at that immediate time? You see, again, even before the servant began the prayer, God had been orchestrating that entire day. Because his will was that Rebekah would be Isaac's bride. And keep in mind that as we read this, we're reading it from the perspective of Moshe, who's writing the book of Genesis. For although we hear that the woman was the granddaughter of Avraham's brother, and thus a fa- was a member of the family, the servant, when, when Rebekah appears, he has no idea who she is. He doesn't know that he, she's actually from, from Avraham's family. But yet, this woman appears immediately after he finishes his prayers and fulfills, what he, and fulfills the actions that he had just prayed for. All he's noticing, though, is that, okay, the woman appears. She's very beautiful. She's a very young age. But it's not until she responds to his request for a drink by also providing water to his camels that he sees his prayer unfolding. Nevertheless, he still needed to confirm that not only had his prayer been answered by God, but that God would demonstrate his approval of Avraham's plans for his son. Thus, he keeps silent until he discovers who the woman's family actually is. Genesis 24, 21 through 27 shows us. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold and said whose daughter are you tell me please is there room in your father's house for us to lodge so she said to him I am the daughter of Bethuel Milcah's son whom she bore to Nahor moreover she said to him we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge then the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord and he said Blessed be the Lord God of my master, Avraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Thus the servant received a double confirmation of God's approval of Avraham's plans for Isaac. Not only had Rebekah performed the task he had asked for as a sign, but she was indeed from the house of Terah, from Avraham's family. This allowed Avraham's servant to see that it was, in fact, God who had led him, that had led him in his paths to Rebekah. And it was not his own understanding or his own strength that helped him identify Rebekah as the intended bride of Isaac. This explains why he gave thanks for giving him success in carrying out the oath that he had made to Avraham. The servant lived out the wisdom that we that we find professed in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, which states, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. And from the beginning of the servant's journey, God had been with him, ordering up his steps, so as to bring Abraham's plans in alignment with his divine will. 
For even Abraham recognized that the servant would not go alone, but rather a messenger, messenger of the Lord would go before this servant. Expressing his confidence in God's blessing of his plans, the patriarch spoke in Genesis 24, 7. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So once we begin to consider the faith that's demonstrated by this servant as he carried out Abraham's plan, how he yielded his own decision-making power and instead sought the guidance of God, it's actually not surprising that he so easily seeks a sign from the master of his master. After all, it is a servant's mindset that is required if we're truly to present our plans before God and seek his authority, his sovereignty over them. For the reason we struggle with doing this is often not a lack of faith that God can exercise his authority over the situations in our lives, but we actually don't want to give up the facade that we are the ones and not God who's in control. We like to think we're in control. Again, the plans we make, we can control all the variables of life around them, and we can make sure that we reach that goal that we've set for ourselves. But the reality is, if you take a servant's mindset, you realize, yeah, I can set up plans, but if it's not in line with the master, it's not going to go where I think it's going to go. And therefore, make my plans, but make sure they align with my master's ultimate will. For someone like Abraham's servant, whose entire life was centered on serving his earthly master faithfully, it was not only natural for, natural for him then to seek out the will of God, the master of his master, but the obedience of this man to his earthly master and then his earthly master's heavenly master, it was unquestioned. It's just, this is, I'm a servant, this is what I do. After, after all, if this truly was Eleazar of Damascus, as most think, Again, he was the steward of Abraham's house prior to the birth of Ishmael and Isaac. And he could have had personal reasons for Abraham's children not to have heirs. After all, at this point, Sarah has now died. Ishmael has been sent away. Abraham is advancing in his years, and he's not, at this point, taken another wife or produced any other heirs. Therefore, it could have been in the servant's mind. Well, if Isaac never marries, if he never produces an heir, then I, Eleazar, once again, find myself in control of the family fortune, should I outlive both Avraham and Isaac. Yet this appears to never have entered into the servant's mind. Once Avraham gives him the instructions, he faithfully carries them out and seeks success in doing so despite it actually being against what some would consider to be in his own best interest. Yet as a, mind with the heart and with a, as a man with the mind and the heart of a servant, he understood that his success is only defined by carrying out his responsibilities to his master. He knows that only reward, the only rewards that will have true value are those that he receives when he carries out his master's plans and his master's desires. For the servant's not interested in seeking out his own will, and he does not des desire to pursue his own plans, but instead he works to carry out the will and the plans of his master. 
Yeshua speaks of this mindset of the servant in Luke 17, 7 through 10. In which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? Afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank this, that servant because he did the things which were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, saying, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. And so if we are to make <clears throat> plans, and make plans that aren't going to cause God to laugh, we must be willing to surrender our desire for control. And we need to become that unprofitable servant or the bond servant who is simply content to be carrying out our duties to our master. Admittedly, yielding up control over our lives is not an easy thing to do. Our flesh rebels against this notion continuously. Of course, in reality, we don't have control over our lives to begin with. The plans we make we can go so far, but ultimately, it's God who's going to determine whether those plans are successful or not. It's an illusion that we control our lives, that we, we convince ourselves of this illusion, that we possess the ability to control what happens to us. It's not there. Even Paul, who consistently invokes the title of servant and of slave to the Messiah in his letters, and he speaks often of himself only as an apostle or a minister, meaning someone who's carrying forth a message for somebody else and who works and acts in the authority of someone else. He carries out all of the things he does as though they are commands of someone else and they are done in his name. Even he, though, wrestled with the temptation to seek his own glory, and his own rewards for the work that he was carrying out for God. Paul speaks of these struggles in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-8. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. That thorn is put in Paul's side to keep him humble, to keep him, actually, remember what Paul's original name was Saul. He's given this name Paul. Paul means small. Again, another reminder of who he is in relation to God. And he, re he recognizes that this thorn in his side is there to make sure he doesn't become prideful because of the works that God is carrying out through him and through his ministry. And it's debated, well, what was this thorn in, God's, in Paul's flesh? And there's a lot of different ideas, and I personally, and I'm not saying I'm 100% right, I'm just saying my personal opinion, is that I actually think the thorn was those who opposed Paul's ministry and opposed him personally. I see it as such due to the context of the letter to the church at Corinth and the possible references to the Tanakh where it speaks of a thorn being in one side. First of all, Paul refers to the thorn as a messenger. In the Greek, he says it was an angelos, meaning messenger, of Satan meant to buffet him. And the use of the term messenger or angel seems to be referencing the false teachers who opposed Paul's ministry. Paul spoke about these in similar terms in the previous chapter. 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 15 states, But what I do, I will also continue to do, 
that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Messiah. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, furthermore, if we turn back to the Tanakh, we see how the enemies of the children of Israel who dwelt in the land of Canaan, who dwelt as their neighbors next to them, they were constantly referred to as a thorn in their side. Numbers 33, 55, and Judges 2, 1 through 3 states. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So just as these close, physically close enemies to Israel would constantly be a trouble to them, they would cause strife and wars, and they would tempt them to go astray from the Torah. So likewise, the false teachers within the Jewish and the proto-Christian communities of the, the mid-first century that Paul was contending with, they were a thorn in his side. And it would have been very easy for Paul in contending with these enemies to, to become prideful and to think that he could take control of the situation because look at the great miracles that God worked through Paul. And look at the amazing ministry that he had spreading the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire of that, of that day. He could have been very prideful in all of this and thinking, well, I can smash these enemies of mine. They're interfering with my plans. What I want to do to, in service of God, they're getting in the way. But instead, a, a thorn is put in his side. And it was there, as Paul says, to remind him that he, he can't rely on his own strength. He needed to rely on God for his strength against them. Just as the Israelites had need to rely upon God for their strength from the nations that were never removed from Canaan. People like the Philistines and the Amalekites. That's what got Israel in trouble. They asked for a king. They wanted to rely on an earthly king. They wanted to rely on their own strength to fight those nations rather than relying on God. Now ultimately, regardless of what the thorn in Paul's side was, what remains important is that God didn't remove it. Because again, it was meant to keep him humble. It was meant to make sure that he recognized that he should not be seeking to control the situation. But rather, he needed to be a faithful servant and rely upon the authority of his master, God, to control the circumstances that confronted his ministry. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 states, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of the Messiah may rest upon me. 
Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for the Messiah's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Keep this statement by Paul in mind next time you hear a preacher who is a self-proclaimed prophet or a self-proclaimed healer. I'm not saying every one of them, because there certainly are prophets and healers out there working by the Spirit. But how many times do we hear these ones who self-proclaim these titles? They, they, they take these titles and place it upon themselves. How often do you hear them, like Paul, talk about their infirmities, talk about their weaknesses, talk about their need to constantly rely upon God? Instead, oftentimes, all it is is a, it's about empowerment. It's being about lifted to new heights and powers and enlightenments. It's about how they are strengthened by their faith in order to move God. And that's the key thing you see when they talk about it. It's like, my faith is so great, and they're encouraging people to have great faith like them because that's what caught, that was allows us to move God. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what anyone in the scriptures say. Rather, it's how, Paul, you know, take Paul's words, it's about how weakened he is, how humbled he is in his faith. And it's in that weakness and it's in that humbleness that he is then being, he is able to be moved by God to carry out God's will. Again, only the mindset of a servant can acknowledge that when he is weakest, that he actually becomes the strongest. For it requires one to acknowledge what their true situation in life is. To acknowledge that if they are to rely on their own authority, their own power to overcome adversity, they're likely to fail because in reality, they have little or none of either. On the other hand, if they acknowledge that as a servant, when they carry out the plans of their master, when they carry these plans out in the name of that authority that they're under, where there is true authority, then they're made strong because they act from a position of where power truly resides. As we think about how we carry out or how we act or how we respond to authorities in this world, those authorities that seem to be parallel to us or the ones that seem to be above us, they, we, how we act truly does speak to, how you act to anyone really truly does speak to what, how you view them having authority over to you. I use, an, I use this example from my own work. When directions are given, whether it be to me individually or to my office, if they come from someone else in the university who's kind of on parallel with us, some other director, some other dean, maybe even a vice president who doesn't have really authority over our area, when we get those directions or we get, um, you know, or we're asked to do something, usually our first question is, why? Why should we do that? Because they don't have authority over us. We, in simply asking the why question, why should we do that, we're acknowledging you don't have authority over me, so you're going to have to convince me why I should do this. In contrast, when directions come out of the provost office, which my office sits under, now the provost is not the ultimate authority at the university, but he's very high authority, and he is one that sits over us, what I've noticed is that the question often is not, again, we don't ask the why question because we acknowledge there's an authority over us here, but 
we still acknowledge there's maybe a way to negotiate. And so the question we always ask is, what if? Okay, I hear what you're saying, you're telling us to do, but have you considered maybe we could do it this way instead? Or what if, um, before we act, maybe we need to consider this, this consequence? So we're acknowledging the authority, but again, we think there's room to negotiate with that authority. On the other hand, when the directions come from the ultimate authority at the university, the president, we don't ask why, we don't ask what if, all we ask is how, how do we get it done? Because we understand this is a directive from the top, there's no other authorities out there, we don't have any authority against it, he's giving us a, a, a way, a, a, he's giving us a direction, a path we're supposed to pursue, so the only question to ask if we don't act immediately is, okay, how do we get this done? So we see, that, and I would argue, we see this played out with the servant of Avraham as well. He recognizes the authority of his master, but only to the extent and that although he does not ask the why question, he doesn't ask why to Avraham, well, why are you sending me to, to do this? He doesn't debate Avraham's intentions. He does ask the what if questions, though. He asks about what if he fails? What if the woman does not agree to come with him? Should he take Isaac to her instead? He's asking these what-if questions. Because, he, again, he recognizes that Avram is an authority, but not the ultimate authority. And this is not, when asking these what-if questions, this is not in subordination to Avraham, But rather, he's, he's, he understands the extent of his authority as a servant is restricted by the authority that Avraham has. And that there may be even a greater authority in all of this. However, once he does set out on that journey, he's asked his what-if questions. He sets out on his journey to complete the plans of his master. He then turns to the greater sovereign. And that's when he, when speaking to God, he'd be then, instead of asking what-if questions, he asks how questions. He asks God to show him how he will know who the right per woman is, who the right bride is for Isaac. And in asking these questions, he acknowledges God's greater authority in which he acts and carries out the plans of his master. And this is how we need to act as servants of Adonai, of God the Father. We should not be, at, we should not be bothering when, God, when we feel we've got direction, when God answers, gives us a sign, when we see a clear way that we're to, to move because it's what God's will is. We should not be bothering with why God questions. We should not be bothering with what if questions. Rather, we should only be seeking the how questions. We should be looking at, we should be looking for how we can know what God's plans are in our lives. We should acknowledge that if we are to have any authority in the situations in our lives, it can only be as a servant of God carrying out his instructions and his will. Because in that sense, when we're doing that, when we're given the directions and we're only asking the how questions and then we're carrying things out, when we make that plan, we know that plan goes forth in his authority. If you want to avoid God's laughter when you plan, you must first come to accept that we are the bondservants, whose reward only comes when the master has been faithfully served. And so with this in mind, let us close with the words of Solomon in Proverbs 16, 1 through 9. The preparations of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord, and your thoughts will be established. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. 
Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Amen. It's our duty to praise the master of all, to ascribe greatness to the author of creation. For he made us unlike the nations of the lands, and has not placed us like the families of the earth. He has not made our portion like theirs, and our lot like all their multitudes. And we bend the knee and bow, and acknowledge our thanks before the king over kings, the holy one, blessed be he. He stretches out heaven and establishes earth's foundation. And the seat of his glory is in the heavens above, and the presence of his power is in the most exalted heights. He is our God, there is none other. True is our king, there is nothing beside him. As it is written in his Torah, and you shall know this day and take to your heart that the Lord, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is none other. Amen. Amen, amen. Let us stand together.